Colossians chapter 3. This will be our last teaching uh, in this letter for now. Colossians 3.22 Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Lord, we ask now that your spirit would pour out revelation and understanding. And Lord, in these last days, I pray that you will equip us further as servants of the Lord Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I still remember my 16th birthday cake. I have a picture of it at home, which helps the whole memory process. It was a white sheet cake, and on the right side of the cake was an orange basketball with black ribbing. And on the left side of the cake was a blue snare drum with gold lugs. And then right there in the middle of the cake sat a big black Bible. It had gold leaf pages around it, and my name embossed in the corner with gold icing. It was cool. Basketball, drums, Bible. That was my life. My sophomore year of high school, 1980, athlete, band geek, Jesus freak. It was those three. (laughs) That year, Mission Viejo High School, where I attended, had both a competitive sports program and a very talented music program. Our jazz ensemble played uh, competitions throughout California as far as Monterey down to Mission Viejo, won many competitions that year. Uh, So it was just a great time, and I loved doing both. I loved being on the court, and I loved being behind the drums. I loved playing jazz, and I loved playing basketball. In the summer of 1980, right before that year, which turned out to be one of my favorite years in high school, Jesus got hold of my heart. Now I grew up going to church. I was baptized at the age of 10 and I gave my life to Jesus at that point, but didn't, didn't know him like I began to know him that summer. He got hold of me and he began then to implicate himself in all of my activities. He just kept showing up. And I remember thinking at the time that I could have it all. You know, my, my future goal, in, or goals, included the NBA. <laughs> Why do you laugh? Could have happened. Uh, a drumming career, you know, to rival Buddy Rich or Ringo Starr. Or, I'm just going to call myself Buddy Pert. That would have been my name. And of course, Jesus. You know, as I look back, and I couldn't have told you this at the time, but my competing interests were pretty intense. And Jesus had gotten a hold of me, and He was real to me, and I I was in a walking relationship. That was when I first started carrying my Bible to school with me. Not because I read it every day, but just because I wanted to have a witness. I wanted to force myself into a position where I had to uh, confess that, yes, I am one of those. I am a, a Jesus person. But, man, basketball took a lot of time. Drumming took a lot of time, and Jesus did say in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now, granted, he was talking about God and wealth. You can't love God and have your head in the stocks and your feet in the bonds. (laughs) But the principle remains. No one can serve two masters. And I had two masters that year. Well, three really. One was gentle and patient and accepting. But the other two, I had a demanding basketball coach. I mean, this guy, just screaming from the side of the court. I mean, if anyone's going to rattle you when you're going up for a shot, no, Crawford, no, swish. Good job. (laughs) 
I also had a, a, a despotic band director. This guy threw his baton at people if they weren't paying attention. And these, these two men were demanding my time. And the coach said, if you don't give up that foolish music and get your head in the game, you will sit on the bench. I'm like, coach, I got the jazz in me, man. He's like, oh, great, go play your drums then, but don't come play basketball. And then I would go to my band director, we called him Herr Fuhrer, and he said, if you don't dump sports and commit to the entire music program, you're out. By my junior year, I was just playing basketball. I set aside the drums. I had to make a choice. And meanwhile, Jesus was neither demanding nor despotic. He just kept saying, hey, play sports, but invite me to the games. Play music, but do it to honor me. 36 years later, I still love basketball, but I don't play much. (laughs) I love music, I just don't drum except when no one's in the sanctuary. (laughs) The Bible is still resting on my lap. It's it's still in the middle of the cake. I don't say that to say, oh, look at what I've done. No, this is what God has done. Over the years, he was patient with me. There were many, many times where, where the cake was in the cupboard, you know, where the Bible was closed and where I wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. But, man, he, he's still here. His lordship love, his servant sacrifice is why his word remains in me. It's why the Bible still sits on my lap. And I learned that you really can only serve one master. The Lord Christ. He's the only master worth serving. The only one who will patiently wait for you and be with you throughout your entire life. The only one who has uh, a prescription for a life worth living. The only one who beyond all of that can bring you home. No one can come to the Father but through Him. Now, as I said, this is our, our last teaching in this Christological, Christocentric communique to Colossae. Amazing letter. And I have loved it. We have only been in it for a little over four weeks. Four weeks ago, we opened up chapter one. And we took a look at the colossal Christ. I mean, you cannot read that Christ hymn in chapter one and not be amazed at his divinity. And how awesome he is. When we think of the phrase, the Lord Christ, I look at that and say, absolutely. As Paul wrote, Christ is all and is in all the Lord. And and it's an awesome picture. And so I think since we started with the colossal Christ, it's appropriate that we end with the sincere slave. Who he is and who we are. And so this morning, our focus is our response to his greatness, to his grandeur, to his awesomeness. Paul goes there in Colossians 3, as we've studied, he gives his practical guide to the Christ-centered life. And he includes a curious command. After talking to wives, be submitted to your husbands, and husbands love your wives, and children obey your parents, and fathers do not exasperate your children, he turns to slaves and their masters. Slaves, verse 22. In all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Some find this strange. Slaves. In all things, obey your masters. Uh, Others wrongly used it as rationalization for slavery in the 19th century American South. There were those in the South who would point to the scriptures and say, See, slaves and masters, we're, we're not being unbiblical. We treat the underlings nicely. We treat those who are lesser. We treat them well. And that was the whole problem. It was so dehumanizing. But it was not biblical. It was a misuse of the Scriptures. Others, even to this day, blame Christianity for the unjust racial inequality that still impacts us to this very day. It's a complete flip. It's an upside down. Because it was Christians who brought about freedom. It was the message of Christ. We are free in Christ. It was for freedom that Christ Jesus set you free. Galatians 5.1 That's where the message of freedom came from. That's why slavery crumbled in America. That's why slavery crumbled in Rome. In fact, David Guzik wrote, No one can ever blame Christianity for slavery. It was a universal practice predating both Christianity and the Jewish nation. 
And the abolition of slavery came from Christian people and impulses. Not, note this, from any other major religion. You didn't hear Islam calling for freedom of slaves. In fact, if you look at ISIS today, it's just the opposite. And not from any secular sources. You didn't hear the secular culture calling for freedom. It came from Christ. It came from the church. It came from people who stood up and said, according to this book, all people are created free and equal. So it came from Christianity. So I, I want to, before we even look at the slaves passage, I want to give you three basic principles that need to be understood when you read about God's prescription for the master-slave relationship in Scripture. And there are several places He does it. He gives a prescription for it, how slaves are to be treated by masters in the old law. He does it in the New Testament. And again, as we've talked about, some see those prescriptions and they say, why doesn't he condemn it? That's my problem with Scripture and with the Bible. Well, listen, number one, note this, Paul never endorses the culture of slavery. The Bible does not give an endorsement for it. It just tells slaves and masters how to conduct themselves in that situation. If you are in that institution, in that situation, in that cultural setting, here is how you conduct yourself as a follower of Jesus, be it a slave or a master. Douglas Moo says the ancient household was often far larger than our typical modern nuclear family, including not just parents and their young children, but older children and sometimes their spouses, as well as domestic slaves. The context makes it clear that this is the kind of slave that Paul has in view here. We're talking indentured servitude. And in a culture where nearly 50% or some say over 50% of Roman culture were slaves, doulos in the Greek, indentured servants of all kinds, there were doctors in Rome who were slaves. They were serving in that capacity. There were musicians and artists who were slaves. By that cultural understanding and definition, indentured servitude. It was more Downton Abbey than Dixieland. But the Spirit has wise counsel for those in that special relationship. And that's where Paul is going. Second thing to note, Paul clearly addresses the slaves themselves. So, that means they were assumed to be in the assembly of the church. That means the slaves were an accepted part of the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ, though they were indentured servants, they could still go to church with everybody else. Paul expected, assumed, they were going to be there in the Colossae meetings, hearing the letter that he was sending to them. Part of the fellowshipping church. So they could hear, and they could then apply these things to their own life situations. As Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Which tells me that in a fellowship of believers, there's room for everybody. And thirdly, Paul did not endorse the status quo, as we said already, he destabilized it. Do you realize that the simple principles of Christianity, the teaching of the Lordship of Christ Jesus, undermines slavery? It destabilizes it. The slave who joyfully, sincerely, and heartily accepts his or her position is really hard to lord it over. The slave who is commanded to go do something and does it lovingly, and yes, absolutely, I would love to serve, and serves to the hilt. Man, it's hard to be mad at that kind of person. It's hard to be bossy with that kind of person. Now, some superiors do anyway. But this introduces the principles of of honor and respect and diligence and self-sacrifice into the servant-master relationship. And you do that, you take away the power of the tyrant. He doesn't have anything on you. He can tell you what to do. And you do it joyfully. But it completely lets the wind out of the sails of the oppressive master. And by the way, Paul uses more ink on these verses, the slave-master relationship, than on wives, husbands, children, and fathers combined. Note that. He spends more time here. And these verses, though you might look at it and kind of skip over it, you know, wives, yes, husbands, yes, children, fathers, we all need that. Slaves and masters, okay, that was for then, and let's move on to devote yourselves to prayer. 
The thing is, the principles here, these verses, speak with real-world relevance straight into the common Christian life. Straight into our everyday. And so, Paul pours all this time and energy into slaves and masters. Why is that? Well, back then, maybe because a runaway slave turned Christ follower was returning with this letter to his now Christian master and they had to face each other. Onesimus and Philemon. So it makes sense that Paul would add this extra section here. But again, it is for us. Think about in our generation, the slave and master relationship. We would say boss and employee. We might say landlord and tenant. CO and enlisted. Supervisors and underlings. I mean, however you want to put it, most of us are in a servient position and or in a leader supervisory position. At some place in our lives, many of us are in both. We oversee some and we are under others. And so the principles here are absolutely pertinent for the lives that we live. Understanding and knowing that in Christ, there's only one standard of greatness. There really is one standard of superiority. For the Christian, and this goes to wherever you're at in your life, if you happen to be someone who you feel like you're under everyone, Everyone's your boss. You got a boss at work. You got a boss at home. You got a boss among your friends. Everyone's your boss and you're just a slave. Hallelujah. Or maybe you are the boss and you're trying to figure out how do I do this? How do I do this in a Christ like manner? Well, James and John, they put in for special seats in the kingdom. They were uh, talking to Jesus about that, wanted to be, you know, kind of lifted up, seats at the right hand and on the left hand. And I would imagine James and John were even arguing over who got the right and who got the left. And they brought that to Jesus, and the rest of the disciples heard it, and they got their robes in a bunch. They heard that, and they were irate, they were incensed. And the posturing began, and we're told in Mark chapter 10, verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant or slave. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. That is the standard of kingdom and church. That's it. The greatness is not in leadership, except that the leadership understand that they are slaves of all. That we need to invert the whole mentality, the whole hierarchy attitude that sometimes we see in churches that goes all the way up to the Pope. Flip it upside down. Because in the church, the greatest is the slave. The greatest is the servant. The greatest is the one who comes under, who serves other. You could say, the lower the servant, the higher the honor. The lesser the slave, the greater the glory. That's the mentality. That's what we're called to when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. We are now called to get as low as we can go and serve. Again in verse 22. So with that in mind, slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth and not with external service. I mean, it's bad enough that he tells us we have to obey those above us. But now he gives us some integrity with it. We actually have to have a sense in our hearts of it. Not with external services, those who please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The implication here is you already have a master in heaven. So it really doesn't matter if you have masters on earth because you just skip right on by that and you serve for the sake of your master in heaven. And it's interesting, it's a little wordplay of Paul. He uses the same word for master as he does in the beginning of the sentence as he does at the end of the sentence where he says, slaves obey your masters. And then at the end of the sentence he says, fearing the Lord. Lord and master are the same word, kurios. So obey your lords here, little l, because you fear the Lord, capital L. Follow and do as the kurios here asks you to do because your kurios in heaven is worthy of being feared. 
And then Paul qualifies the, the first kurios with the phrase kata sarka. Kurios kata sarka, which is your master, your lord, according to the flesh. Obey your fleshly lords by fearing your heavenly lord. Psalm 123 verse 2 says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us. There's a, there's a pattern there in how we serve and how we are willing to submit, and we submit for the sake of our Lord. Capital L. Jesus said, after all, Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios, and do not do what I say? And it is one of the strangest things that we see among followers of Jesus, and He's right in asking the question, for the Christ-following employee, or, or tenant, or grunt, it's a fair question. Why do we call Him Lord, but do not do what He says? Oh, he's my Lord, but I'm going to do what I want. He's my Lord, but you know, I got my own thing going on here. And Jesus said, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Listen, it's not just calling Jesus Lord. See, that's paying lip service. It's not even just doing things in His name. It's obedience to what He commands. It's acquiescing to His desires over my own. And that's what, that includes a willing obedience to those who are in authority over us. Which is difficult, especially if you have a demanding boss. If you have a jerk spouse. If you have someone in your life who is just pushing the power buttons right and left. In that situation, it's like... You come home and you're grumbling. You know, you, you go to lunch and you're fuming. He is such a jerk. She is so overbearing. And Jesus says, Slaves, be obedient to your masters. And, and not just, again, paying lip service, not just doing it, okay, I'll do it, but I don't have to like it. Note this. This is what I call the intentionality of sincerity. The intentionality of sincerity. When he says, not with external service. That's literally with eye service. That is, when the chief, when the boss, when the overseer is present, when you see them, oh, you're working for them. But the second they round the corner, you're back to playing Yahtzee. You know that your work is only efficient when the boss is watching. Or lip service, when the boss is listening. And it lacks integrity because it's just playing the game, and in the meantime, grumbling, and and, and Leslie's smiling here. I know she never does that with me. Actually, I do know that pretty much, right? You know, it's, it's saying, yes, read, boss man, and, and then under your breath, but I don't have to like it, bozo. <laughs> the intentionally sincere servant is not a time-wasting, pen-stealing, water-cooler-chilling clock watcher. The intentionally sincere servant is working hard every moment of the day, obeying the requests and the demands even of the boss, because I'm doing this for Jesus. I remember when I first got married, and I was learning the whole, many of you recall those days where you're learning the whole uh, spousal relationship, and now all of a sudden you're in this relationship where someone's asking you to do stuff you really don't want to do, take out the trash, (laughs) empty the dishwasher, put your clothes away. I'm like, I did put my clothes away in the corner. (laughs) And doing the things that are now requested of you. And you know what began to happen? Cheryl and I started to play a little game when we were first married and the game was who could outserve the other. 
And when we played that game, something took place in my heart. And I remember this pretty vividly one day, realizing when I did something for Cheryl, I was doing it for Jesus. And that got me really excited. And I think it lasted for at least four days that I was doing, you know, for her, for him. But that's the mentality. That's the right mentality. I'm serving the Lord whether the boss is around or not. I'm serving the Lord whether the boss is kind or not. The intentionality of sincerity. And notice he uses this word, verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Do it heartily. What does that mean? Had a hearty day today. The word in the Greek is exukes, soul. In other words, I like this, do your work with soul. Man, have a little soul. Doesn't mean that you're walking through the office singing James Brown, you know. I feel good. Hey boss, woo! You know, no. Do your work with soul. Get this, understand this. It means you're intentional. Because the soul in the scriptures is the seat of reason. It's your thinking. It's your intellect. It's where you process things. And Paul is very clearly saying, process through the mentality that says, I will serve the Lord by serving my boss, my master, my landlord, whoever it is. That's intentional sincerity. I've thought about this. I'm going to do this because I have decided to do this. And not just for the company, but for the Lord. How would that kind of perspective affect our interactions with anyone above us in rank or position? How might that perspective begin to change the work environment? Because as you are serving the Lord by serving the boss, others around you are seeing the joy with which you're doing your job. And we wonder sometimes why Rick talks all the time about evangelism and sharing Jesus. You know, you share Jesus verbally, you speak the name of Jesus, as I've said, but if you're not living as a servant of Jesus, then what you're saying falls on deaf ears. And yet if the person sees that this really is some of who you are, this is your character, this is your nature, because I've seen how the boss has treated you, and yet you still seem to acquiesce lovingly and caringly, and what's up with you? Well, I have another Lord. I have one who's greater. That works, by the way, in the home as the children watch mom and dad interact. And it works as the grown children watch mom and dad continue to interact. The impact is felt. And especially if you're around non-believers every day, like I am in the office here. I mean... (laughs) Leslie just shaking her head. What a jerk. Hey, boss! Anyway, it's so vital. What what, what Paul's sharing here, that he repeats this exact thing to the Ephesian fellowship. Listen to this, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. It's amazing. It's almost as if Paul cut and pasted from a flash drive. Only he didn't have one. That he would send off this letter to Colossae. And once that letter was sent off, then he would be about the business of writing, speaking, the letter that would go to Ephesus. This is interesting to me. Because if the apostle didn't write both letters concurrently, which we don't believe he did, he wrote to Philemon and Colossae first, and then to Ephesus sometime later that year, he didn't call it up on his computer, he called it up in the Spirit. When you read Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 8, the parallel is almost word for word. What does that tell you? The Spirit is being clear with the churches. The Spirit is speaking nearly word for word through the Apostle to put pen to parchment so that Ephesus as well as Colossae, two different cities quite a distance from each other, would hear the same message. And that message, which is so important, needs to be heard in the church today. Slaves, obey your masters with fear in the Lord and not with eye service. Man, do it intentionally. Do it because you love Jesus. 
And know this, that serving unto Christ has its own reward that is bigger than a paycheck. And it's bigger even than advancement in a company or a relationship. Listen again to verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 6. Knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. What is he saying? Is it quid pro quo? If you do these good things, it good will be done to you? Is it like a secret salary? It is so much better. Back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 24, get this, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. So it's not just the intentionality of the sincere, it is the inheritance of the servant. And this blows away the paycheck mentality. This completely eradicates it. When you say, what do I get out of this? You already have it. You've already got it. What? Peter says in 1 Peter 1.4, An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved for you in heaven. And this is what I call institutionally ironic. Because guess what? Slaves don't get an inheritance. Only sons do. But you are all sons of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Your inheritance is secure. John 8.35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Galatians 4.7, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. I'll repeat this again. Ladies, you are sons if you are followers of Jesus Christ. Men are brides, ladies are sons, that's the deal. <laughs> Revelation 21.7, Jesus says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, how might that view of inheritance change our work ethic and our attitudes here and now? That was one that, I mean, it kind of jumped off the page, shocked me that I am not working for a paycheck. Or even for what I think I deserve. Man, I've worked so hard and they gave me nothing. Okay. But you have an inheritance. I am already an infinitillionaire. An infinitillionaire. I have infinite wealth. I have an infinite inheritance. You can't take that away from me. You can rob me of my job. You can remove my circumstances. My whole life here can implode, but I've got an inheritance that is reserved in the heavens for me, and it's just waiting. And I know it. My parents were hard workers, both in retirement now, both wasting my inheritance. (laughs) Cruising all over the world. You know, they, they bought airline tickets to come up and visit this summer. I'm like, you sure you want to spend that money? Maybe. Just... But I'll tell you something. About probably 30 years ago, so early in my marriage, I realized that my dad and I were having a conversation. I was just getting into ministry, and, and I opted out of Social Security. Some of you are like, oh, why would you do that? Well, because I don't think it's going to be there, but that's beside the point. So I opted out of it, and I remember my dad saying, he, he said this, caught my ear. Now make sure, son, that you are putting away for retirement. I think I started um, last year. But he said, (laughs) he needed to put away for retirement. But then he said this, and I caught this. He said, although, now you'll probably be fine. And I realized, because my parents had worked so hard and put so much away and and have a retirement, they bought their house in Southern California for $26,000 in 1964. (laughs) So I'm sitting on a pretty tidy nest egg is what I'm thinking No, I'm not. I'm not. You know what? I don't need a dollar from that because I have an inheritance. I am rich beyond measure. And so are you. If you are a son through Jesus Christ, you have an inheritance that will not fade. It's non-taxable, irrevocable, eternal. That's our inheritance. And we as slaves now can function as slaves because we got it all. So we don't have to worry about what we're given here. By the way, you know that what you're given here, God 
determined for you to get anyway, right? And you understand that, that, that He's the one who's given it. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ephesians 1.18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why, Paul? So that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And if you know that what you have right now is from the Lord, that He's providing exactly what you need, when you need it, it may not come at the time you think it's going to, but it comes because He's got you, how much more your inheritance in the heavens, the inheritance of the saints. Don't work hard for the money. Work hard for the Master. That's the deal. Verse 24, continuing, and then He says, It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And this is hugely important. And again, it sets the focus on Jesus Christ as the one Lord, the one Master. You cannot serve two. There's only one, and it is the Lord Christ. But I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. First, Paul adds a cautionary observation. Verse 25, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without Partiality. I like what John Corson says. He says, God is no respecter of persons or parsons. <laughs> no matter who you are, God is completely fair across the board. And this is what I would term number three. We talked about the uh, intentionality of sincerity, the inheritance of the saints. Number three, the implication of sin among slaves and masters. You might say, well, wait a minute. All of a sudden, this verse 25 doesn't seem to fit here because I thought he was talking about servants of the Lord. Christian servants. I thought that was the perspective. Why is he raising the threat level? No, I I thought we were forgiven and all of a sudden he who does wrong will receive the consequences of that. I thought I was forgiven. My inheritance. What's the deal? Hey, we are forgiven. Absolutely. Verse 25 is not about condemnation, it's about consequence. And you need to recognize that, brothers and sisters, redemption from sin doesn't remove or reverse necessarily the repercussions of sin. My brother, you pastored a church in Campbell, California, years ago. And that church, God used that church to do a mighty work, at least in the life of one person. A prostitute who got saved came to the church with her son no father and the church wrapped their arms around her and him loved them she got baptized sanctified redeemed she was there every Sunday and within two years she was dead from AIDS now received I believe immediately into the arms of Jesus But the consequence of the sin still ran. It was still there. The fallout of sin had already physically reached its tendrils into her body and the outcome did not change. Whoa! What kind of forgiveness is that? Eternal. She got her inheritance. But the lifestyle leading up to that caused carnage that she had to continue and deal with. Do not be deceived, God says, Galatians 6-7. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And that goes to believers and non-believers alike. Becoming a Christian doesn't put a Teflon coating on you. This sin just rolls off. You can still be stung, and if you sin, even as a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean necessarily that your salvation is in jeopardy, but it does mean you may have some fallout and some consequences you have to deal with. Because you chose to sin. It's what sin does. Numbers 32.23, be sure your sin will find you out. Sin is an exacting taskmaster. Sin lures you in. The devil lures you in with something that looks beautiful. You take a bite and then he snaps. And there are consequences. I think about David. David in the scriptures, a man after God's own heart. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba. And he makes sure that her husband gets murdered to cover it all up. And guess what? God called him on it. His sin found him out. 
And yet after the fact, he was still a man after God's own heart. But if you read the life of David from the Bathsheba incident forward, the fallout of that sin caused his family to be one of the most dysfunctional families in Israel. He would have one son kill another son because he raped a daughter. I mean, this is all within one household. You think your kids are messed up? Look at David's. What I'm saying is the consequence was there. A man of God loved God. He repented of the sin and God forgave him. Created in him a clean heart. You know, Psalm 51, read it. And so while David's heart was right with God, his salvation with Jesus secure, his consequences played themselves out. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 25. You will receive the consequences of the wrong you've done without impartiality or without partiality. That happens. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 22 says, His own iniquities will capture the wicked and he will be held with the cords of his sin. This is what the world doesn't understand when they look at God and say, oh, He's just a killjoy waiting for me to mess up. No, your sin is waiting for you to mess up. Your sin will find you. Your sin is what rats you out. The Lord is gracious to save. Sin always has its own strings attached. The repercussions always come. Jeremiah 2.19 Your own wickedness will correct you. And your backslidings will reprove you. Grace is immediate. Forgiveness, absolutely certain. But sin can still snag us, which is why we're told in Hebrews 12, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the Master. The Master, the Lord. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Masters, now turning his eyes to those who are in charge, the bosses, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Again, kurios, lords. Treat your servants right because you are a servant. You have a lord. And this is as important as anything that we've talked about being, you know, a good employee, a good underling, you know, a good enlisted person. This is as important, and it's what I would say, number four, fourth and final point, the inclination of the superior. The inclination of the superior. What guides our behavior toward those who are under us, quote unquote. What is it, bosses? What is it, uh, leaders in households? Parents, husbands, what is it that guides and directs the way you interact with those who would be submitted to you? Professionally, domestically, socially, financially, educationally, and yes, spiritually, what Paul is saying is that the godly superior is the one who, get this, serves the servants. The greatest master is the one who stewards the steward. The one who bends down. For two reasons. One, because they know they too have a master in heaven. Chapter 4, verse 1. And because they know that that's what their master in heaven did. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place. And with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's the example of the perfect master. The master who would serve. Master Jesus who said, I I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. The God who in all of His grandeur and glory and might bowed down below the lowest human being to lift them up. That's the example that we have. So it's not only because He's God, but because He's God who has served that we in leadership or in mastery of anything, we bow to Him. Because that's what He does. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Although He, Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And if that wasn't enough, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He allowed those who he came to serve to kill him. 
oh man, my job is just killing me today. Oh, he's, he's really harsh. I just feel like I'm being lashed right and left. Yeah. Praise the Lord, it makes you like Him. If you're being bossed around and pushed around and treated unfairly, hallelujah, that's how Jesus was treated, who is master over all. Anyone here have a position higher than His? Then that's the example. Now, look again at verse 24. Last part of the verse. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. The Lord Christ, Hokurios Christos. Interesting, this is the only time in all Scripture we see that title. Oh, we see the title, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see Jesus inserted. The Lord Jesus Christ we read 22 times. But the Lord Christ, just back to back, two titles. Lord Christ, Master Messiah. Paul is emphasizing here something we should not miss, especially when you see something that's the only time it's mentioned in Scripture. Get this. Some people say, oh, it's only mentioned once. I say, it's only mentioned once. To me, that doesn't diminish it. It increases the value tenfold, a hundredfold. If he only says it once, pay attention. This is the only time he is called Lord Christ, the anointed authority of Jesus. And that over all creation, back in Colossians 1.16, for by Him all things were created in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is Lord Christ. There is only one. And I believe Paul is elevating that and emphasizing that. So listen. If by serving the boss, the master, the chief, you can serve Jesus, do so heartily. With all your might, with all your joy, with all the love that's in you, knowing your inheritance and knowing who your true master really is, serve Him to the hilt. And, masters, if by serving the servant, you can serve Christ, great. Serve the servant. Parents, serve your children. Wives, serve your husbands. Husbands, serve your wives. Fathers, serve your kids. Employers, serve those who work for you. That is the ultimate boss. You know, Michael Scott. From the office. Very first office episode. He's being interviewed and shows his world's greatest boss mug. That he bought for himself. So my staff bought me one. It sits on my desk. So when you come in my office, I just want you to know I didn't buy it. How do you, how do you play that role? How, how do you become the world's greatest boss? By being the world's greatest servant. Serve those who work with you, who work for you, who are doing... I sit here and I look at this church and I'm blown away at the service that goes on here. I mean, it just... There are times I don't get it. And then I read the Lord Christ and go, ah, that's it. Because I know it can't be me. When our staff is working their fingers to the bone, I know it's not me. It is the Lord Christ whom they serve. And so again, whether servant or master or boss or or employee, it makes no difference. We serve the Lord Christ. Now now listen, I've got to make an application here, and this may feel like a little bit of a left turn, but it's so important you hear this. If by serving anyone, and this is the single caveat, if by serving anyone we would do a disservice to the Lord Christ, we must choose the Lord Christ. That means in the workplace, if the boss is asking you to do something that violates your relationship with Jesus in any way, you can't do it. It means if you're a public servant police officer, school teacher, and you are required by law to do something that violates this word, you got to serve the Lord Christ. And I'm saying that because we are in the last days and we are fast coming into times where people are beginning to lose their jobs for serving Christ. Public servants who are beginning to put under heavy duty pressure. And I want to invite and ask all of you to pray for our public school teachers. 
Because they are being asked more and more to teach things that are not biblical. Being challenged for our public school administrators who have to now oversee as the new curriculum comes in and have to pass it along and they see what's in it and say, I'm not okay with this. But I need to speak both to parents of kids in public school and also to public servants who are working in that environment. And please hear, this is so important. We must be a people who choose Christ over all others. That we serve because of Him. And we love because of Him. And we, and we do so joyfully because He is Lord and because He is Master. But when we are taxed to do something that is against Him, that is the point where we say, I can't do it. Come what may. If that means I get written up, and one of our public school teachers has been, in this fellowship. If that means I get called on the carpet, if that means my job becomes in jeopardy, I, mean, I, can't, I can't afford not to have my job. I don't think we can afford to violate our relationship with the Lord Christ. That's a much bigger issue. I need to point this out practically. There is a new sex ed curriculum being proposed for Oak Harbor Public Schools. Parents of Oak Harbor Public School children, you need to be aware of this. No one knows. I mean, it's very, very quiet. It's very behind the scenes. There's a committee working on this. The curriculum is called FLASH. The FLASH curriculum changes from what right now, though we're seeing all kinds of things being forced in our schools, and especially since the, uh, the marriage law was changed. Which I've said before, actually the law wasn't changed, but the Supreme Court ruled. So I guess they're, that's legislating from the bench. Traditional marriage now kicked the door open. And what we have seen in the last year and a half, two years, since traditional marriage was changed to include anybody in any relationship, what we've seen happen is not just that, okay, good, you know, the, the, the men can be married to each other and the women can be married to each other and that's all we really wanted. No. No, we have seen a flood of sexual immorality. And it is especially hitting in our schools. This new curriculum changes from the abstinence-based model to an assumption that all teenagers are going to be sexually active anyway with multiple partners, so we might as well show them how and have them celebrate it. That is the FLASH curriculum. And it, it, it teaches, you know, the proper... So that we can avoid things like sexually transmitted diseases and AIDS, we're going to now teach how to do that, how to avoid these things. We're going to build the hospital at the foot of the cliff rather than the fence at the top. That would be abstinence, if you're not tracking. And this curriculum is being worked on and being brought in, and with it there's a whole slew of stuff, mentality behind it. It is a curriculum for 7th, 8th, and ninth graders. Parents of Oak Harbor Schools, they have to present this new curriculum publicly. And it's supposed to happen in the next couple of weeks. I'm not exactly sure of, of the dates, because it could be on the April 14th or it could be on the 21st, but there's supposed to be an announcement that goes out. It may be in the school newsletter. I, you know, I, I guarantee it's not going to be splashed all over so everybody knows. But this committee has to make a final determination, but before they can, it, it does have to be brought to the public. And it's probably going to be stacked in you know, a large agenda on some night, and tucked toward the end and, and covered and then moved on, and they will bring in this new curriculum. Parents, you need to know this. And as Christians, stand against it. And you can look it up. Look up the Flash curriculum online. Study it out. Be aware. Be alert. Because this is happening to our kids. It's what our kids are being taught. And here's the question that I've got to ask. Because I happen to know that there... I don't think I should say that. (laughs) There are Christians who are working on the committee. There are Christians in administration who are saying, hey, this is just the law of the land, we just have to go with it. And in my opinion, this is just my opinion, but they are absolutely wrong. Because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, not the public schools. Most of you who are in the public schools and you're working as public servants, you are serving the Lord Christ. You're in that role because you serve Him. Because you wanted to serve, you wanted to teach, you wanted to love kids. And you do so because you love Christ. But when that is changed, now you're having to teach something or accept something or or speak in such a way that denies the very clear teaching of His Word. 
got to choose the Lord Christ. Because as Christians in these last days, this, the line's being drawn. And there are entire churches that are choosing to stand on the side of the line that says, don't worry about it. We'll just do our thing and let them do their thing. And it's cool. There are few churches where it's even talked about that we should stand for Jesus even if that violates, listen to me clearly, the law of the land. But what about Romans 13? you got to accept the obey the governing authorities. He never says obey the law of the land. He says obey the governing authorities because they're there to keep some, you know, to manage things. But we get this thing in our, in our minds that says religion and society, kind of two separate things. So society says this, I'll do that. I'll still have my religion. I'll still go to church and get my Oscar Milk Toast teaching, and that's cool. And then over here, i just gotta, I got to play ball, got to play the game, right? There's only one Lord Christ. And in these last days, we all will be called upon, every last Christian in the last days is going to be called upon to either stand up or shrink back. Which is it going to be? Teachers, what will you do if forced to teach curriculum that you know is ungodly? You've got to call, make that call. You've got to talk to the Lord and decide. Administrators, will you require it of your teachers? They said to Jesus, Shall we pay taxes? Oh, they had him. They had him. Because if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, insurrection! But if he says, yes, you should pay taxes, well, then all the Jews who were angry with Rome would be like, okay, we're not following this guy anymore. We got him! And Jesus said, bring me a nickel. Show me a denarius, he said. Mark twelve sixteen. they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and transcription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. And that's sometimes what we as followers of Jesus miss in our conviction of following the Lord Christ, that we are to render to God the things that are God's. When He answered them that way, it says they were amazed at Him. They're always amazed at Jesus. Everything He said, they're like... Foiled again. We can't best this guy. It's like perfect integrity. Jesus was not an insurrectionist. And and honestly, neither am I. But there is a holy hierarchy. And at the top of that hierarchy is the Lord Christ. As I said before, most of our laws and our rules, and and, and even in the business place, we have certain standards, and therefore governing and maintaining civility, and, and I get that, it's all fine. But when those laws, when those directives counter the things that are God's, our service must be to Him, and not to man. Keep the word on the cake, right there in the middle, front and center in your life. Study to show yourself approved. Know what God says and live that way because no one can serve two masters. Render to God the things that are God's. You want to know how to master servitude in this world? By living the Christ-centered life. And that's what Colossians has been about. May we be a Christ-centered people. As we close out Colossians, don't close out the things that are God. It's the Lord Christ we serve. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask for boldness. And even if we are pushed down, and even if we are put in places that are uncomfortable, we have to submit. Help us to serve the Lord Christ. Father, I pray for every boss, for every leader, for every uh, master, that we would all bow down to serve the servant. To serve those who are already serving. That we would be the lowest of the low servants. And all of us would would be servants of Jesus Christ. And Lord, in these last days, I pray for a boldness among believers. A willingness to stand up. Not, Not to fight. Not to be angry. Not to be troublemakers. Oh Lord Jesus, you were not a troublemaker when they took you to the cross. 
You spoke truth. You stood by the truth. You said, I am the truth. And they killed you for it. And I pray, Father, for for Your integrity to be among us. And should we suffer for it, we suffer in the name of the Lord Christ. And should we be honored in it, we are honored in the name of the Lord Christ. You are the one Lord that we serve. Give us strength for these days. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand and worship Him.